discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. But I ask that all calls today be directed towards my guest, who I'll introduce to you shortly. He is Sina Mohajer, a family law attorney who's going to share with us his insights and thoughts on family law. I know there's lots of people who have questions regarding divorce, custody, and various issues of that matter. And even sometimes when people call in, they ask about that to me. And of course, I don't know what to tell them exactly. And so I wanted to have a family law attorney come on the air to talk a bit about what he knows and what he can share with us. And sometimes there's some myths that people have about things related to divorce and custody and related matters and thought he could maybe dispel some of those and give us some information. So before I bring him on, let me give you a little bio about Sina Mohajer. Okay, so after earning his bachelor degree from Arizona State University, Mr. Mohajer completed his legal education here in California and has been admitted to the bar as a member of the Los Angeles Bar Association. Prior to starting his own practice, Mr. Mohajer worked as a senior associate for a firm where he practiced in the areas of family law, civil litigation, criminal defense, and other areas. Mr. Mohajer has been successfully running his own firm for the past four and a half years, primarily concentrating on family law. He has received the Top Attorney's Certificate by Pasadena Magazine in 2017, as well as the Lead Counsel Certification in the Legal Disciplines of Divorce Law and Family Law. And if you want more information about him and his law firm, you can go to mohajerlawfirm.com. Sina, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yes, and before we get into uh, the different topics we want to discuss, I know uh, you wanted me to share a disclaimer because we will be talking about legal issues, but nothing that we discuss today would be able to be constituted as professional or official legal advice. So let me read this disclaimer. So communication of information by, in, to, or through this broadcasting and your receipt or use of it is not provided in the course of and does not create or constitute an attorney-client relationship, is not intended as a solicitation, and is not intended to convey or constitute legal advice, and is also not a substitute for obtaining legal advice from a qualified attorney. You should not act upon any such information without first seeking qualified professional counsel on your specific matter. So we got that out of the way. Um, And I think that is important for people just to recognize that, yes, we'll be talking about issues and you will give some guidance and advice to degree, but then nothing that we will cover today could replace actually getting professional legal advice. Absolutely. I think it's very important that that the listeners understand that what we're going to do today is pretty much just kind of do uh, just scratching the surface in family Mm -hmm. law. Um, Mm -hmm. There are very many different scenarios where someone might come in. It's very important that they sit down with a family law attorney, go through the specifics and find out what's the best procedure or next move for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because without knowing all the details that go into an individual case, you can't really say, for example, you'll get 50-50 custody or this is going to happen or that. Uh, So we're talking about some generals, like you said, scratching the surface and giving some information. But if anyone is dealing with a specific case of their own, of course, they're going to need to reach out to an attorney and get some uh, one-on-one advice from them. Um, But just starting off, you know, family law is 
a difficult area to work in. I've talked to attorneys who do different types of law, and they sometimes say that family law is the area they wanted to avoid because they felt like you're constantly dealing with divorce and people in a bad situation. I'm wondering for you, um, since I, when I've talked to you, it seems like you do enjoy your work. What is it that makes working in family law meaningful to you? Sure. Well, well, to touch on why maybe some other attorneys don't want to proceed in family law, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a vast amount of different areas of law. Um, many areas of law deals with litigation, going to court. Uh, I can imagine that those same areas, these same attorneys may not want to touch base or even even um, to practice in that area because of the confrontation, the drama, etc. Family law is a little bit more sensitive than perhaps criminal defense or civil litigation. Here you're dealing with families, you're dealing with children. Um, the impact that it has on children in a divorce, for example, is very sensitive. Many attorneys might not be able to see the bigger picture as far as what they can do to make amends or resolve a very bad situation. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it because I'm a family guy. Uh, I have two daughters of my own. I've been married a long time. I understand the value of family and children specifically. So when I approach a divorce case or a custody case, I look at to see how I can make this situation better than it has to be, uh, better than where it may lead to if they didn't have the proper guidance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So you, yeah, people are coming in in a bad situation, but what you're trying to do is to make it in a way the least bad or the best outcome possible in a not so favorable situation. So I think that's uh, that that is very that could be very meaningful and so you're helping people and you mentioned being a family guy and I know I know your wife and yourself for long many many years almost decades now and then also your two lovely children so I know you value families and kids and you're trying to bring uh, the best outcome possible. And I think that's really, really important because, you know, we're going to be talking today about some not so pleasant things that people go through starting with divorce. And very often I do get calls about this where people, they're so scared of the divorce process. Now, of course, making the, the decision to divorce is a important one. And I always tell people to really, especially when there's kids involved, do everything you can to try to make the marriage work. So I always say, don't just stay together for the kids, work together for the kids. Because you'll hear that a lot. People say, oh, I'm not going to get divorced because of my kids, but, you know, the marriage is just horrible and bad, but I'm just going to wait till the kids turn 18 and then maybe get divorced. And I say, no, actually go work on it. But let's say you've come to that decision to make the divorce. People can be very scared of legally what's going to happen. So I can imagine when people come to you Often they are maybe in that state of un, unsure of what's going to happen, maybe even a little bit afraid of the legal process. Have you experienced that oh, with clients? Ab- absolutely. Um, I think it's almost given when a uh, person walks into my office never having to deal with a divorce, never having any friends or family that dealt with a divorce. Um, as you said earlier, it does complicate the divorce if there's children involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking at a huge element in the case that needs to uh, be either litigated or resolved in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, when it comes to divorce, you're right, you have to come to that decision, uh, whether you want to end the marriage and the, the oath you've taken with your partner to, to stay married for so long and work together and call quits or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, that's the first step that you have to decide what is it that you want. Yeah. Do people ever come to you and ask, should I get a divorce or not? Is that somebody's part of it or have they already made their decision? No, no, actually, no, they have. Uh, there's been many times people have come in and sometimes mediation does help. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, they might are seeking counseling of some sort. They need somebody as a third party neutral to talk to both people to kind of figure out what problems they're having and maybe lead them in the right direction. Divorce is not necessarily your only option. You, mm-hmm. you always have multiple options. Right. 
Yeah. Um, Jack, I'm sure they're coming in. They're not even sure what the right choice is. So maybe before we get into divorce involving children, when children are not involved, what's the process like or what, 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 do we, what are we dealing with there? Sure. Well, with any divorce, um, it's always a court proceeding mm-hmm. to, to, to end or dissolve a marriage. You have to go through court, file an action or a lawsuit. You're essentially suing your spouse. Um, hmm. It sounds scary when you yeah. use those words, but in fact, you're actually opening up a case. You serve the other individual and you're asking the court to make a final order or a finding in order to establish who walks away with what property. Um, if there is any uh, pretty much dissolving the marriage, if the um, one spouse wants to revert back to their maiden name, they can all mm-hmm. in the same mm-hmm. process. Interesting. I didn't know that it was actually a lawsuit. Why does, Why is it? Is it a lawsuit because you're breaking a contract that's been made or what's the what's that for no it's it's anytime you file anything with a court as far as um an adversarial position where you're um opening a case against someone mm-hmm. you are suing them mm-hmm. um in family law we don't use that term very often right. for example a lawsuit or you're suing your spouse but essentially that's exactly what it is but it's a petition they call it differently because it is family law so they mm-hmm. call it a uh petition to dissolve the marriage and mm-hmm. you're asking the court for assistance but procedurally it's the same thing as a normal lawsuit okay and then so someone might say you know what i want to avoid court Can they avoid court? I know you mentioned something that there has to be something officially done in the court, but is that an option that people have if they feel like they can resolve it on their own or with a third party mediator or whatever it might be called? Are are there those types of options available? Uh, There is, but at the end of the day, you still have to go with filing something with the court because only the court can dissolve the marriage legally. Um, There's such a thing called a collaborative divorce or... um, I'm, try, I'm, I'm losing I'm losing the terminology, but um, where the parties have already agreed to mm-hmm. how they would dissolve all the assets and how they would um, uh, dissolve the marriage, et cetera. And all they do is they enter into a stipulation, a stipulated judgment, pretty much an agreement between them. Mm-hmm. And all they're really requesting is for the court to sign it to make it legal and official. This way they can remarry, they can divide the assets and enforce it if needed be. But Usually when the parties are uh, working so well together, usually you won't have to end up having to go back into court to enforce that uh, stipulated judgment or that agreement. Uh So, and is that any of that related to a prenuptial agreement or no, that's actually made when they're going through the divorce? What I was speaking of is what they're going through during the divorce. Prenuptial agreements are a completely different ballgame that does come into play absolutely. And that actually sets forth how things are divided at time of divorce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so maybe we'll touch up on that as well. So as you mentioned, when the, when there are, the kids are not involved, the process or the procedures are a lot less complicated, right? So uh, it's still going to be, can be complex. And of course, we hear about a lot of bitter uh, divorce, you know, legal proceedings, but kids make it a lot more complicated when they get thrown into the mix. Absolutely. I mean, with kids, I mean, there's this presumption and I'm going to, I'm going to presume that everybody who's listening, if you have children, you love your children to death Mm -hmm. as I do, as, as every parent I've met. The reason why it complicates it is because now you have the element of emotion. You have this sense uh, that you need to protect your children. And because your relationship with your spouse has deteriorated, you've lost that element of trust. Therefore, you can't trust them with your own kids. Even if you were married long-term, over 10 years, 20 years, or what have you, um, and they are very well capable of caring for those children, mm-hmm. but because your trust has 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 taken a hit, 
you no longer are able to to see things clearly. Um, I always tell my clients, even if I'm a family law attorney, I've, I've been doing this for a while. If I were knock on wood, get you know going through a divorce myself, knock on wood, never knock on. <laughs> thank you, knock on wood. I would Roy, I hope it. you heard that part. Okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I I would also hire a family law attorney. Yeah. Why? Because I, I I wouldn't be able to think clearly. I wouldn't right. be able to see the bigger picture. I'm all tunnel vision because right. of my emotions. Yeah, of course. Well, that makes sense. I think relationships in general and parenting, but both, they bring up some of the most intense feelings that we have. So I think it makes sense what you're saying, and you probably see this with your clients, that they can get so uh, carried away by those emotions that they can make what might be poor decisions for themselves and even for their kids. And I think that's something that I I hope we'll get to touch on in the future, uh, the, the segments we'll do later in the show, because I think parents so often, they get so caught up in the battle and with between them and their spouse or becoming ex-spouse that they lose sight of everything including their kids and what I always say to parents is when you're firing shots at each other you have to understand your kids are in the middle of that battlefield so they're, they're getting hit by those bullets even more than you guys are they're getting it the worst so trying to hurt your ex is going to hurt your kids more than anything it's going to gain for you or or hurt them um, and I think that's something that I want to get your perspective on what you've seen in families and what you've experienced and also some advice you can give people going through the process to make this like you were saying kind of the the best worst outcome you know so divorce can be a very horrible thing to go through but if we can make it end the best way possible or make the process the best possible for for both people and especially the kids that's what we're going to be uh, looking at. So we're at our first commercial break. Again, joining me today is family law attorney Mohajer, Sina Mohajer. Sorry, I was looking at his law firm name. His law firm is Mohajer Law Firm. You can get more information about that at mohajerlawfirm.com. And the phone lines are open. If anyone does have a question for him, 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back again, joining me today, family law attorney Sina Mohajer, and we were talking about divorce before the break, and now we're going to get into divorce with children, which is, as you mentioned before, much more complicated. And I've worked with families before divorce, during divorce, after divorce, and seen, unfortunately, how horrible of an impact it can have on families. Now, a divorce always is going to have some negative impact, although that can be better than staying together which I want to make very clear because I think sometimes people hear, well, divorce is painful, so avoid it. Yes, divorce is going to be painful and have some negative effects, but if you're in a very contentious marriage and there's fighting and discord and constant chaos in the home, that's worse than having two happy homes or two calm homes. So just because divorce is difficult doesn't mean it's bad or the wrong choice. It could just mean it's the better of two evils in a certain situation that you're in. But um, getting into... Uh, divorce. And we all know the stories of the people have memories or of family members or friends and they hear stories in the news of just these really bitter divorce uh, proceedings that go forward. Um, to start with, maybe we can just talk about the process or what happens. So when there is a divorce with children, and you mentioned it complicates things, what are some of the first steps or what goes on in that process? Well, 
Whenever children are involved, you normally are not able to wait until your divorce case is ready to proceed forward with a trial. Mm -hmm. So you have to remember, as I said earlier, it's a lawsuit. So you actually have a trial date. Uh, When you file your petition for dissolution, your case will not be ready to be heard for trial for at least a minimum of six months. So in the interim, the family court has set up what's called a request for order. So where you can actually petition the court for some temporary orders in the meantime Mm -hmm. until your entire case as a whole is ready to proceed to be finalized. And so that's the time when parents usually come in, they file a request for order to have some type of temporary um, custody orders or visitation orders mm-hmm. in place. That makes sense, yeah, because so if the parents start living in two separate homes in the process of the divorce, uh, they want to figure out what are what's the custody. And so you're saying there's things before the divorce is final where they can get some judgments on determining the custody at that point. And that might not necessarily be what the final decision is, but it's just a temporary correct. action. Correct, correct. Yeah, and, and, and just for as a, just to correct you, it's not a judgment. Because remember, a judgment is going to be final. That's at the very end. Right. These are just orders, court orders. And any court order would be uh, binding and legally enforceable. It's technically law. So when mm-hmm. you violate a court order, it's as if you're violating any other law, which could be a criminal act. Okay. Yeah. So what what could be the consequences of that? Consequence of violating a court order, you would be held in contempt. Mm-hmm. And in contempt, you could be sentenced to jail, paying fines, um, community service, uh, pretty much the same type of um, penalties as you would maybe as a, as a criminal case. Got it. Okay. So yeah, you go, you want those, so those things are filed before the court, uh, maybe even the court date is set for the actual divorce proceedings? Right. Before the trial is set. Trial is set. Okay. Got it. So that's something that's done initially. And um, then getting into the divorce proceedings, what is that process like as far as figuring out everything, but including the custody? Okay, so it, it's a very big question. Uh-huh, so sure. um, feel free to jump in and cut mm-hmm. me off if, if maybe no I'm rambling too much. Um, normally, when when you file for divorce, there's more issues than obviously just children. Sure. And this is assuming that you are getting divorced and you have minor children, minor being under the age of 18. Um, you have property issues, you have spousal support or alimony issues, you have child support issues. Um, It could be other minor issues, for example, keeping certain family members away from the children for whatever reason. Mm. So all of these issues can be heard in between the date that you initially file your petition and your trial date if it's needed. For example, if you need some type of temporary orders in place and it cannot wait until trial. Um, during that time, also, you go through what's called the discovery phase. In family court, they've made it a little bit easier where you don't have to wait for the other side to ask you to disclose certain information, and therefore you can hide assets. Um, now, given I've had plenty of cases where the other side has hidden assets, but you are obligated under the family code um, within a certain number of days after the petition is filed or a certain number of days after your response is filed to, to provide the uh, initial set of disclosures. Mm-hmm. For example, an asset and uh, debt schedule of assets and debts to disclose to the other side, hey, this is what I think we have. As uh, as a when we were married, all the assets; these are all the debts, the value. Here are all my separate property that I believe I'm entitled to, mm-hmm. and some property I feel you're entitled to. So it pretty much just shows the other side your cards. Yeah. I, again, we the, the parties don't always do it. That sure, way. <laughs> of course, and that's I've heard a lot of stories of people uh, trying to get away from that, hiding money, saying it's their parents or their un- their brothers or whatever somehow getting trying to get away from it, but I'm sure they do but so that's something that does happen and and we can we very regularly hear and I'm, I know state to state it might be different but this idea of everything gets split 50 50 
you know, um, is that the case? Is what what is you know? And I'm sure it's going to be again more nuanced than just to say it is or it isn't. But um, when it comes to property or money or what assets, how does that get split? Sure. So because we're in the state of California, California is a community property state, which means anything acquired between the date of marriage and the date of separation, mm-hmm. um, anything acquired between that time is presumed to be community property. And if it is community property, it's divided 50-50. Very simple. And that includes debts and includes assets, anything acquired between the date of marriage and the date of of separation. So if a house was purchased during the course of the marriage, it doesn't matter who put how much money into it, it's it's split 50-50? Correct, because you have to remember, when you get married from that initial day, anything you generate as far as income, uh, anything that you have, well, I, I mean... We're getting to specifics. If, for example, you were using a savings account that you had prior to marriage and you use that as a down payment, now we're opening a can of worms, which mm. I'd be happy to dive into. But uh-huh. let's let's first set the rules. Sure. Um, let's presume that uh, one spouse is investing part of the down payment along with the other spouse equally, but from their job, their income they're receiving from their work. Mm-hmm. If that income was earned during the time of marriage, that income is not your income. That's a community's income. Therefore, the community has paid the full down payment. And therefore, that real property is 100% community property. Now, I threw a percentage out there. Yeah. Let's say, um, for example, you either purchase a house right before marriage or you use savings that you've had prior to marriage as a down payment on a home that you purchased during the marriage. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about separate property. In both scenarios, buying a house before marriage, it's presumed to be separate property or the house that you purchase during the marriage, but using your separate property funds for the down payment has a presumption that it's separate property. Now you've got mortgage payments. Who's paying those mortgage payments? The the, the family is the couple is Mm -hmm. during the marriage and where that money is coming from will determine whether that, that house or that real property will now start generating a percentage of interest to be community property. Interesting. So I could see how it can get very complicated. Um, there's different factors that go involved, and then the calculations probably get complicated at that point. How much, how much of the house was separate property? How much of it is community property? I don't know if if the house increases in value. Like how do you, you know, all those kinds of things. I'm sure can get very complicated. Absolutely. As well. Um, what about this, like gifts? Because you know sometimes, especially in Persian families, you know they'll gift a lot of money or even a home or the down payment or something like that. Is a gift to the couple considered 50-50 or does it matter who the gift came from? So it it matters who the gift is going to. Interesting. Now, if I had my mother gift myself and my wife together a lump sum of money, that is no longer separate property. That was given to the community. However, if my mother gifted me that sum of money and she said, Sina, this is for you, for whatever, for your business, for your home, what have you, that's a gift to me. That's considered separate property. Interesting. Okay. And then how is that even clarified? Because let's say... um you know, like same scenario, the parents say, okay, we're going to buy, we're going to pay for the down payment for your guys' home to give you guys, you know, start in life and blah, blah, blah. It, do they, is that considered community property or could they say, we're getting this for our son to have this home, blah, blah, blah. Like, could they, do they have to somehow clarify that in writing sure. somehow? Yeah. And, and the thing is, you're not going to, you're not going to go through life, especially when you're married. Sure. You're not thinking you're going to get of divorced course, to right. ask your parents to, to <laughs> sign a, a, a written document to say yeah. that this down payment is for me alone. Right. Um, in that type of situation, if it ever comes to divorce, um, it may be a litigated issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, for example, if that was my parents, I may argue, well, that was my parents who did the down payment. It was obviously a gift for me. They would never have given it to my wife had we have not been married. Um, and they would probably testify. What was their intent? 
when they made that down perch uh, that down payment mm. was it meant for both of us to benefit or was it really the, because they were helping me out interesting okay so more than likely it's going to be considered community property but it's possible they can go back cuz i just you know these things happen a lot and then people are may, maybe won't know and i'm sure again case to case might be slightly different absolutely at how it is but so if it was anything made during the marriage especially in a state like california it's going to be a 50-50 split um, of those assets. Correct. Okay. And then, you know, actually, maybe because we're talking about splitting assets, we can, the, the kids is going to be a big topic that we're going to cover. Maybe related to that is spousal support because we're looking at just uh, the financial side. So, how does, how's fa- spousal support calculated or d- determined? Sure. Well, um, like I said earlier, when you file your, your petition for dissolution and by the time it's ready for trial you can ask for interim orders um one spouse might not be able to uh, generate as much income to maintain that same standard of living mm-hmm, to pay mm-hmm. for rent or anything and they may not have the luxury of waiting until their case is ready for trial so you can petition the court in the interim to ask for temporary spousal support now if you're ordered temporary spousal support it does not guarantee that's going to be the same amount you'll be ordered at the final judgment during your trial. And the way family court calculates spousal support at those two different uh, uh, points are completely different as well. Hmm. During trial, uh, the family court has to go through, I believe, a 15-factor analysis. It's under the Family Code 4320. Uh, There's a a list of everything that they go through regarding standard of living, um, the health of both parties, the supporting party and the supported party, Uh, what kind of lifestyle they're currently living. It just goes into a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're looking for temporary spousal support, it's a little bit easier, luckily. And uh, every family court will use a software called DisoMaster. Most, if not all, family law attorneys should have this or do have it. And that allows us to kind of input data regarding your income, your spouse's income, whether there's any children, tax exemptions, et cetera, just Mm -hmm. filling out as much information as possible. And then it just generates a number. It tells us whether spousal support can be requested and who pays who, how much. Interesting. Okay. So it's not like the judge makes a judgment or determination based on their own, what they see. It's more kind of an algorithm that's calculating things? It's a yes and no. So primarily it is an algorithm when Mm -hmm. it comes to spousal support or some people call alimony. However, the judge has discretion to modify that amount, whatever comes out on the the computer, let's say. Okay. And related to that, sometimes, you know, you hear people say, um, this, I think what standard of living or what they're, you know, standard living that they're accustomed to, what's, how does that play into the things like spousal support and whatnot? So the standard of living only applies at the time of judgment where you're requesting the judge to order permanent or um, a more permanent spousal support order. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, depending on the duration of your marriage, if you've been married 10 years or more, you're considered being in a long-term marriage. Anything less than that is short-term. Long-term marriages, you will re- if you receive spousal support, you will receive it until you die, your spouse dies, or you remarry. Mm-hmm. If you're in a short-term marriage and you are ordered spousal support, it normally will last half of the duration of your marriage. Interesting. So if you were married eight years, you'd get four years Correct. of uh, spousal support. So, And that's, you said, 10 years is that barrier of when it becomes yes. considered a long-term marriage. So long-term marriage, it's, it's a kind of a death-to-you part, <laughs> to death to us <laughs> part kind of a thing, or until you remarry. But then if it's a short-term marriage, it's half that time. Absolutely. Yeah, because I've heard that a lot of people say, well, I'm, you know, if you have a standard of living, you 
you have to keep that standard of living, but is that, so that's not necessarily the case. And and so that question, the standard of living, you have to remember when you're married, normally to, to have that standard of living, you're having two sets of incomes contributing right. to maintain that standard of living. Yep. When you get divorced or when you separate, you no longer have that extra income. So obviously you're going to have to downsize. So the court will not expect you to pay enough child support to maintain the exact standard sure, of living. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's why they call it a standard. For example, how many vacations you normally take, um, mm-hmm. you know, the vehicles you drive, uh, that that kind of thing. Yeah. Not necessarily the five-bedroom, five-bath house in Beverly Hills. Sure. Can I maintain that as a single parent? No. And that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like you even said, maybe the two incomes changes on top of that. Now you're actually paying for two rents or two mortgages and other things or expenses or going yeah. increase. So that, that makes sense as well. So of course it's going to be kind of a case uh, by case thing. You know, some people might say, am I going to be asked to leave the house or is my partner going to be asked to leave the house that we live in? Is there any kind of legal precedent on that? Is it kind of something that's determined together? So normally, at least in my experience, normally one uh, person ends up leaving the house and that's what actually marks the date of separation. Mm-hmm. So, um, another question a lot of people have is, well, how do I, how do I determine when we separate it? Mm-hmm. And it's normally when you make a final determination that the marriage is not fixable and that you want to end it and you act upon that in some way, for example, either moving out of the house or one other, the other person moves out mm-hmm. or you guys might not be in a position to move out and pay for rent at the same time dealing with a mortgage. So you may end up uh, sleeping in separate rooms, uh, eating at separate times, eating separately, things like that to kind of create that date of separation. So you can be in the same home and still be considered separated? Yes. If you're sleeping in separate rooms? Sleeping in separate rooms, keeping everything separate. For example, you're not sharing costs or utilities. You're Mm -hmm. really separating everything. Because remember, it all comes to argument. Um, one spouse may push for the date of separation to be longer. Why? To, to maybe reach that threshold of a long-term marriage. Oh, or um, it could it just prolong or even stretch out the time that they receive spousal support. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons why one person may want to have a, a, a longer duration rather than a shorter one. Got it. But so there isn't some any kind of set precedent about who leaves the house? Because I've heard sometimes they... Uh, husband and wife might fight about that. I don't want to leave the house. I'm comfortable here. Or, you know, it's my house or it's this or it's that. And then, of course, what we'll talk about um, maybe in the next segment, because we're going to get into the kids issue, I think the kids should be really taken into account uh, about that. And I've even heard, and this is, of course, only for families that really, really can afford this. So it's not obviously everyone, but um, some families will have the kids stay in the same home and the two parents will get like their own smaller apartments that they live in. And then whatever parent has custody goes to that home. So it's really the kid's home. And then the parents kind of switch back and forth. And again, that's only for those who have that financial luxury, but it's to make it so the kids don't have to switch houses, have to move their things around and can even maybe stay in the home that they Grew up in. Have you ever seen that happen? Or Very that... rarely. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because it just it's just happening right now in one of my cases actually, mm-hmm. where um, you've got the mom and dad splitting up one minor child, I think age six, so very young. Mm-hmm. And in order for her, for the child not to keep being transferred back and forth between the different homes, yeah. she would stay at the central home, if you want to call it. And then the parents will end up living uh, separately in, in another small apartment or condo mm-hmm. for a duration of time. So this family, they've decided what they would do is for three months at a time, uh, one parent would be the primary custodial parent and the other one would be the visiting parent and then three months they would switch Hmm. and the custodial parent will be able to stay with the kids at the 
quote unquote family home. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. So I've just heard of that again. It's not most people probably don't have that. Uh, you know, very rare. Yeah. It's it make it's rare, but I think it's keeping in mind this idea that maybe you can't do that, but that you want to do what's in the best interest of the kids and make it the least inconvenient yeah. and difficult for them, um, which we'll talk about after the break. Again, my guest today, family law attorney Sina Mohajer. If you want to call in three one zero four four one zero five five five, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back again, my guest today, family law attorney, Sina Mohajer. We actually have a caller, Sina, let's take that. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, hi, good afternoon. Good I appreciate Dr. Faris for the chance giving me to ask my question. Absolutely, and thanks for calling. Guest. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you. Mr. Mohajer. Uh, I would like to know what are the differences between filing for a divorce and filing for a separation. Okay. And in case of filing for separation, uh, after uh, finalizing, um, are each other responsible for uh, the debt? For debt, yeah, after okay. After filing, are we responsible for the debt of after the filing. Uh, okay. spouse? Sure, thanks for those questions. Uh, so, Sina, we could start first with the, the difference between filing for separation and filing for divorce. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, first of all, thank you for calling in. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, and I didn't touch on that earlier. Mm-hmm. Normally, yes, you can file for a petition to dissolve the marriage, but you can also file a petition for legal separation. And what that essentially does is it it terminates um, or it puts a, a stopping point of what the community is uh, incurring, whether it's assets or debts. So... Um, the difference between the two, you're still able to um, divide all the assets and debts according like a normal divorce. However, you're still married. You cannot mm-hmm. remarry. Um, you would have to dissolve that marriage before you you know, take the next step. Interesting. Okay. So so what would you maybe make someone want to file for separation rather than divorce? I think, I've, and I've had a couple of those cases, and I think it's because they were not sure they wanted to end the marriage. They thought perhaps maybe a significant break was in order to maybe get things, uh, you know, clear their mind, figure uh-huh. out what they want in life, and maybe make amends and, and rekindle. Um, those are the only times I can project of why a legal separation would be better than divorce. Got it. By the end of the day, fundamentally, it's almost the same. Sure. Okay. And then the the second question she asked was about regarding debt, which I'm sure is complicated, but um, uh, what could you say about that? Sure. And because fundamentally legal separation and, and filing for divorce is pretty much the same thing, it would be treated the same way when it comes to assets and debts. Mm-hmm. So if during the marriage you acquired any debt doesn't have to be significant. It could be very nominal. Um, that is a community debt. And so when you set a legal date of legal separation, you need to handle all the debt because anything after legal separation would become your separate debt and his separate debt. Mm-hmm. So let's say one partner runs up credit card bills like, you know, $10,000, $20,000 that they spent without maybe even the other partner knowing or without the other partner wanting to spend it. Great what, example. Yeah. What happens there? <laughs> it, it happens a lot more than you think. Yeah. So it all depends on what those charges were for. Um, if the part, the part, let me, let me backpedal a little bit. Sure. Uh, both parties are not 
uh, obligated to be given notice of any any debt that is incurred during the marriage. Mm-hmm. But if the person, let's say the husband, uh, racks up about twenty thousand dollars of debt, and the wife is trying to dispute it, saying, "Well, I, I'm not touching that." I don't have to pay half of that because I didn't know about it. The question now lies is that $20,000, where did it go to mm-hmm. and to, to who benefited from it? If the community benefited from it, then it's a community debt. You're not you're not establishing labels so earlier on saying that, well, now wife has to pay half of it. You have to first place the label of whether it's community or separate. Hmm. If he racked a $20,000 debt and he received the benefit, for whatever reason, if he had a mistress, um, he was going on golf trips and you know leaving the wife behind or something of that sort, you would have to litigate it. The judge would have to uh, agree with your viewpoint. Then that would be a separate debt. Interesting. And what if it was you know there was like some kind of deceit? Let's say since we're just saying this this husband, we'll use the husband example. He buys something for the house, but says it was a gift. But he goes and buys it and lies to their the partner and says like, oh yeah, we got a gift. $10,000 or whatever, but he went and spent it himself or he spends it and uses it on the family without the wife knowing that he's, you know, getting these things. So let me see if I understand the question. Um, in this hypothetical, we've got husband who, let's say, purchases something for the home for $10,000. Or let's say even th- say this, he says, oh, I got a company car, but he didn't, but he goes and buys a car for $50,000, just like hypothetically. What is that considered still community because they're both driving the car and using the car, but she thought it was a gift or it's a company car. I mean, and I know it's a little bit complex, but I'm just wondering if there's deceit involved, could that change the the kind of the way things are looked at? So deceit, yes, because it's going to come down to proof. Mm-hmm. How can you prove what and, and how to prove it? Um, and that hypothetical regarding a business vehicle, for example, yeah. um, he used community funds rather than his business funds to purchase this quote unquote business vehicle. And yet they're both using it. Um, at that point, it depends on what they're they're wanting to do. If the husband's saying, hey, the car is part of the business, the business is mine, it hasn't been divided during the marriage, and he takes the business, therefore takes that luxurious car, mm-hmm. and wife is saying, no, uh, I've been driving it too, the community benefited from it, now the burden is going to be on the wife mm-hmm. to prove that the money used, first of all, was not the business money, or number two is that even if the business paid for the car, the community was still benefiting from it rather than the business itself. Got it. You know, and another kind of debt that maybe, you know, people can get into trouble with is like gambling debt let's mm-hmm. say is that considered one whoever is responsible for the gambling is paying for that you or? would you would, and normally in that type of case and, and i have oddly enough i did have one case regarding gambling mm-hmm. um but this was a significant amount this person individual had a significant gambling problem mm-hmm. where you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. in debt and that was um, fortunately i was representing the other side and fortunately that hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt ended up being a separate debt because it was an addiction. It was it was it was as if they had a drug problem, mm-hmm. and therefore there was no benefit or harm that went to the community. Only upon the individual, right? Or actually, just harm to the community, not even benefit. Harm, yeah. But yes, yeah, so it wasn't like, and maybe the pa- partner didn't even know about it, or if they did, they couldn't really control it, or didn't have any desire for them to be spending right, that right. money. Yeah, because I mean, it, it gets interesting because uh, people even like you know they always. They might be fighting about spending money, but I guess if it's being spent and they both know about it, there's no there's no way they can dispute that. Okay, he spent too much on this or she spent too much on that, that they can't, if they don't have the money anymore, they don't have the money anymore. That- right, right. And, and of course, this is all theoretically we're speaking yeah. of, but you have to come down to the reality. Now, if you guys are fighting over uh, specific charges, 
you have to understand what it entails to be able to prove your point in court. You can't just go to court in front of the judge and argue, I didn't know he spent $200 on this, or I didn't know she she was spending all this money on her nails and hairdos. This is very nominal charges that's not worth litigating because you're going to spend way more money proving your case than getting anything out of it. to prove anything regarding finances, usually you would have to retain or hire an expert forensic accountant. They will go through all your documentation, credit card statements, bank statements. They will do asset searches to find out if anyone's hiding any money in offshore accounts. So you're spending $400, $500 an hour for this individual to do their digging and their research. And then you have to pay for them to come testify in court. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to nominal charges, for example, oh, my husband went on numerous golf trips and I don't want to pay for that. Or my wife spent all this money on hair and nails every single week and that's, that didn't benefit the community. At the end of the day, you have to find out what's the the finan- the, the smart way of handling it financially, the economical way. And that's just to, hey, let's just try to settle that right. issue rather than try to litigate it because you're going to spend way more money doing so. Got it. Okay. Um, let's see. So caller, did that answer your question? Yes, I had um, very beautiful uh, answers, but from what I understand, all the debts uh, prior to finalizing is community. But well, my question was, after finalizing, if any debt happens, uh, a new debt mm. for the spouse after separation finalized, um, is the other person obligated? Okay, thank you for clarifying. Yeah, so after finalizing your legal separation, anything acquired after that is separate property. So if you're okay. if you're yeah, your your separated spouse acquires debt, okay. that's their that's their debt. You're not obligated to pay half. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your time. Sure, thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, that was a good question. I didn't think about that uh, aspect of it because that I'm sure does come up. Uh, debt is, we talk about assets, but that's kind of sure. the flip side of it. There's there's debt as well. Now, you know, we have a few minutes in this segment, but it's something we'll talk about more looking at uh, kids and child custody. So first, maybe you could talk about that process, what happens in determining um, child custody. And then maybe also later on, I want to get some of your you know, just advice and things you've observed that you'd maybe want to give to parents of what they can and can't do or shoulds and shouldn'ts, do's and don'ts about that. So what's the process of determining child custody? Sure. The process, the family court judges and commissioners, the courts itself, they look at really one standard and that's what's in the best interest of the child mm-hmm. or children. They don't care about anything else because here only the children matter. They don't care whether one parent feels that they would be uh, or they, they're entitled to having more time with the children for whatever reason. For example, if they were the one who always made the breakfast for the kids mm-hmm. and has taken them to school, but then now the other parent is able to step up, they're going to look at what's in the best interest. And as, as, a, as a blanket rule, the court will look at a 50-50 custody split is presumably mm-hmm. in the best interest of every child. So it's kind of the default is 50-50. Yeah, yeah. They want that. consistent and continuous contact with both parents. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So that's kind of where the starting point is. They want 50-50. They want both parents involved. But of course, um, then the factors come into play. Of, A lot of elements come I'm into sure, play. Yeah. So, and I'm sure you can't, it can't be an exhaustive list, but can you get into some of those or some of the more significant sure. ones? Uh, I mean, a huge one is time. 
Uh-huh. Um, for example, you can't have a 50-50 split if, for example, one parent is constantly working and the other one is not. Because then the question is, where will the child or children be? If they're going to be in daycare or after school program, which isn't really needed, then now you're preventing that child from spending time with a parent mm. and instead having that child spend time with a third party, which is not in their best interest. So time is going to be a huge factor. <laughs> Geographical location is another huge factor. If the parents are living so far apart where they can't really do 50-50 split because the children are in school, well then that goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Now we have to look at, okay, what can we do to give as much consistent and continuous contact with the non-custodial parent? Got it. Okay. So yeah, they're going to look at those different factors. And, and unfortunately, I think this is sometimes where parents can make things very ugly, uh, maybe start attacking each other, trying to say he or she's not a fit parent and, you know, whatever else, or bringing in things about their personal life that they feel like is negative. Of course, sometimes there's truth to it, but I know it also can get very ugly. Have you noticed that? Is this where things... Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. This this is what I like to call the campaign, the campaigning part. <laughs> For uh-huh. example, each parent is campaigning, saying how wonderful of a parent they are and how a terrible uh, parent their opponent is. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets very, very ugly, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. Because uh, you have to remember, your marriage may have failed. Your marriage may have fallen apart. You know, you may have lost trust and love or whatever for the other person. But your kids, your kids don't feel that way about either of you. Your Mm -hmm. kids love you both equally and they deserve to be loved equally by both parents and spend as much time with both parents equally. Um, At the end of the day, what matters more? And I think, I think most parents would agree that they would, they would sacrifice their own life for their children. So just keep that in mind if you're ever going through divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, don't think of your own selfish reasons of why you want, you know, more custody or prevent the other person to have much visitation. Think about your kids. If you're willing to die for your kids, then you should be willing to put your own differences aside or your own selfishness aside and make sure you're making the right move for your kids. Absolutely. I think that's so true. And I think we'll talk more about that after the break. But I think that's such a, you know, it's reminding me, I forget if it was Buddha or some, there's some famous old story about the two women claiming that this boy is their child mm-hmm. and then he says okay well you have to show me whose child it is pull on the child to see whose it is and then they start pulling and one of the women lets go and and then he says well the woman who let go that's the mother of the child because she couldn't bear to see her child in pain pulling Absolutely. and Love so she story. let go so it's kind of that same thing you might be fighting for the kids thinking it's out of love for them but if you're pushing and pulling them and putting them through all this stress uh, and hardship you're actually hurting them much more and it's not coming from a loving place i think you used a very good word it's a selfish thing it's it's about you so i think we'll talk more about what parents maybe should and shouldn't do in this process of divorce to make it easier on the kids again i'm joined by family law attorney sina mohajer you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fyderlock. We will be right back. Welcome back again, talking about family law issues with attorney Sina Mohajer. Before the break, we were talking about kids, and this can become one of the saddest parts, I think, of actually divorce, is how... Uh, kids are affected and sometimes how parents can make the divorce process actually worse for them. As I mentioned before, divorce is going to be a difficult and painful process. But as a parent, you would hope that your role will be to minimize the pain and to make it easier for them. But unfortunately, we see that parents can get so caught up in the battle between their ex and themselves that the kids become especially kind of like a pawns or uh, prizes to fight over 
rather than these gifts to value and to make sure, you know, they're treated the best way possible. So we're talking a bit about the custody process. You said initially or overall the courts want 50-50 or as close to that as possible, both parents involved in all of that. Um, but getting into the maybe the uglier side of things, what do you see parents sometimes do? And you did mention already they start campaigning that I'm the good parent, he or she is the bad parent. But what do you see parents do that makes this process even more painful and difficult for themselves too, I'm sure, but especially for the kids? Uh, the biggest thing that I see is normally when there's an allegation of some type of abuse, mm-hmm. abuse, neglect, um, and abuse goes in, in so many different areas. There's, there's, you know, verbal abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. So um, that is where I've seen these cases t- turn for the worse or become even uglier than they have to be. And sometimes, and, and let me say this as, as, as just kind of as a disclaimer, um, if you're in a relationship where, you know, you are seeing signs of abuse, mm-hmm. definitely don't just keep quiet. You definitely want to bring it forward. What I'm talking about is parents using an allegation as a right. as a means or a ploy just to, to gain an advantage. Like a and, false allegation, right? Yeah, yeah, a false allegation. Absolutely. Where it's re- or if, if it's an allegation that's not founded at all and it's just something that you might be feeling in your gut. Because remember, you're getting a divorce. Your emotions are running high. You have zero trust for the other side. Of course, your gut's going to tell you something that may not be true. Mm-hmm. So you never want to rely on your gut. But um, definitely there are signs. uh, There's been cases where abuse has been present. Sure. And the court has to look at, okay, well, what's in the best interest of this child? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, of course, uh, your point is about false uh, allegations or accusations. If it's real abuse, absolutely you want to make sure it's reported and dealt with. And that's very important. But, yeah, I could see that in the midst of just things getting ugly and this feeling of I just have to win. And win means get more custody or get all the custody that parents might go to some really ugly places and, and maybe even some as lawyers, I, I know that you wouldn't do something like this, might even unfortunately suggest some things oh, absolutely. like that. Yeah. Absolutely. There, there are attorneys out there who, who like the fight. I mean, don't get me wrong. The whole reason I, I stepped foot in litigation, meaning going to court and, and fighting, is because I enjoy that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do what's in the best interest of my clients and what I believe is in the best interest of the children. I'll tell my clients if they're being selfish. I'll tell my clients if they're um, acting out of a sense of control to um, limit the other side of visiting with the kids just because they want to have that ability or that that yeah. sense of control over everything. I'll be honest. But there are there are attorneys out there who billable reasons or for what have you may try to um, influence you into fighting harder and harder. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of maybe can be seen as, I don't want to call it a conflict of interest, but it can be that, you know, financially prolonging things is better for the attorney at times than to to try to solve it maybe in a faster matter. And I think the faster things happen, probably the better it is for the kids too, not to get dragged into this whole process. So, um, and because I know you, I can believe that that's how you are with your clients, that you let them know, look, this you know, you might even win this, but it might be worse for your kids in the long term or it might have negative effects. So it's not just about winning. And so, you know, I guess that could be a hard thing for an attorney because, of course, you want to take pride in your work and you want to be good at what you do. And it does sometimes become like a win-lose kind of a thing. Like, you know, you go to a, the, the judge and if the judge is in your, you know, decides in your favor, it feels like a win. And if they don't, it feels like a loss. Um, but you do have sometimes these very vulnerable little kids that are involved too. And so I'm sure even as an attorney, you want to make sure you don't get caught up into this win-lose 
kind of a thing oh, where, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter what happens to whom or who, I don't even know which one's right. Uh, you just want to win, right? Sure, so sure. do you, have you noticed that or do you see that in yourself or other attorneys, this feeling of winning becoming the most important thing? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I've seen it and, and I've also experienced it. Yeah. I mean, I'm human. I'm sure, not perfect. Of course. Uh, I go in into quote unquote battle and, mm-hmm. and I'm in battle mode and I look at my opponent who's normally represented by an attorney and yeah. I take this as a personal challenge to establish who's the better attorney. Right. But you have to kind of step back. You have to remember, okay, what's at stake here? Who are you representing? And it is somewhat uh, sometimes a conflict of interest because you're trying to establish yourself as an attorney to being a powerhouse or what have you. But at the same time, if your client doesn't want to move forward with litigating an issue or doesn't want to fight for an issue, but you're pushing it for your own Mm -hmm. uh, selfish gain, then that's where it's wrong. Right. And that's that where you got to step back and do what's right for your client. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, when you as as the attorney, do you see the kids often or no? Is it usually just the the parent that is, you know, that not, sees I don't see them very often. Okay. There are times I do get to see them, um, especially if there's uh, custody battles that are very, um, uh, very difficult to deal with. Usually uh, the parents will exchange the child or children at court. So there are times wow. where we're in the hallway waiting for the court to call our case. I get to interact with some of the kids. Interesting. Okay. Because I was wondering if that can affect, like just seeing them can have an effect. But I know being a father yourself, you probably have a soft spot for the kids I always. Do. <laughs> and you, do you feel that? Is there? Yeah. Is it, yeah. It, does, it definitely does personalize it, though, when you do see the sure. children, when, you, when sure. you get to interact with them. Because you get to see who they are as a person, you mm-hmm. know, their character, their, their characteristics. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, again, the parents... Uh, they can make things a lot easier on the kids or they can, of course, make it much more difficult. And we're talking about some ways that that might happen. What have you seen parents do that you think actually you know, is helpful? Like what do they what can they do to make this process as easy as possible on the kids? I mean, communicate. Communication is huge. And I know everyone hears about, oh, yeah. if you communicate, it's great. Sure. But, and, do you mean with their ex? Or with, the, yeah, yeah with, oh. with the other parent. Absolutely. Yeah. Communicate. Um, if you're not communicating, you can't find out what the other side is thinking or feeling. Mm-hmm. You two might be on the same page. Um, I've seen a lot of times where just starting a conversation really helps. You can see what the other side is thinking and why they're thinking it. For example, why mom thinks that dad should not have 50-50. Mm-hmm. Why mom feels that dad is only entitled to every other weekend. Um, and it could be very uh, reasonable uh, a reasonable basis for that. For example, the, the child is in school during the weekdays and who helps the child with homework? Mom. Right. Dad's too busy to work. And weekends are the only times where you can spend time and do something fun with the kids and both parents deserve to have that opportunity. So an alternating weekend situation for, for example, the working dad may be what's in the best interest of the child. Mm-hmm. But dad might not know that's the mentality of mom. Dad might think it's just a controlling issue for mom. So communication can definitely clear a lot of... Uh, Misinformation, right? Yeah, and make things go much more smoothly. And related to that kind of this, the miscommunication, and back to the the adversarial mindset that parents can get. I think you know it's we start at fifty fifty, and parents could feel like any more I get means I'm winning. So if I get sixty forty or seven, whatever the percentages are going to break down to, it's kind of like I'm I'm winning, and it's because I'm a better parent or a better person. And then they use that to tell their friends and family and everyone, they want everyone to know, look, the judge awarded me this much custody. That means I'm better than him or I'm better than her. And going back to that word selfish, it definitely does become that. But I think I've seen it so often that I think it's, it's, it's pretty common, right? I mean, that people can get caught up in this winning. And if that percentage gets flipped into my favor, I'm a better person or the judge is saying I'm a better parent and I want to win rather than what's 
best for the kids. Sure, sure. And then, yeah, I call that bragging rights, right? Yeah. Um, that's definitely one reason why the fight is is fought so so um, so adamantly. Yeah. But also another factor is sometimes child support. Because mm-hmm. you remember, child support is a huge factor with any uh, custody battle because yeah. normally the person who is the non-custodial parent, the one who normally has visitation, tends to have to pay child support. Mm-hmm. And the less time you have with your children, the more you normally would pay. Interesting. Right. So it might be strategic in that way. Oh, yeah. It becomes a money issue too. And again, and you know, again, money issue, again, that word selfish comes into play. Mm-hmm. So just focusing on <laughs> that. And that, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's like we get caught up in these numbers, the percentages, the numbers of the amount of money and not realizing the kids' feelings, you know, is, is so important. I mean, I think about that as like, even if you're fighting for child support, if you legitimately need the money, I get it. But I think sometimes people can get caught into, I want to win more money or make, or, and it's sometimes it's not about just what you get. It's about hurting the other partner more. Yeah. Like I know it's going to really piss him off or hurt him to pay more or her or whatever it might be. But think about the emotional cost to your kids of dragging things along, of making things more adversarial because, you know, a, a word and we definitely have to talk about when it comes to divorce is co-parenting. And I'm sure the uglier the divorce becomes, the worse the co-parenting relationship and dynamic becomes. And your kids are going to pay that price too. Um, because, you know, you mentioned this, that, okay, the, the marriage is not working out, but the kids don't have to pay. And that's the same thing we're talking about with co-parenting that, um, okay, you two have decided that you can't, for whatever reasons, can't work things out. The love is gone, or maybe there was infidelity, or for whatever reason, the marriage isn't working. But you're still both these kids' parents, and you're the only parents they have. And so you have to do everything you can to, to parent together. And co-parenting is a, is a kind of one of those cliche terms that gets thrown around a lot, but I think it's so important for parents to really think about that and realize that you aren't going to be that person's husband or wife anymore, but you're their co-parent basically for the rest of your kids' lives. Oh, yeah. And you, ha- you have to take that very seriously. Yeah, and actually one thing I, I always tell my clients, and sometimes I have the, the opportunity to talk to the other parent, is that depending on the child's age, six, four, 10, what have you, you're looking at the next however many years yeah. until that child turns 18, you're going to have to deal with each other. You're right. going to have to essentially co-parent and there's going to be issues that you two need to communicate about. The sooner that you are able to figure out a way to coexist and to co-parent this child or children mm-hmm. earlier on will set your life a lot easier for the remainder time, remaining time that the child is under 18. Right, yeah. It, and it's, you know, because I think you can get caught up in that battle and not forget the bigger picture, which is once the divorce is finalized, yeah, there might be another decade where you guys have to still deal with the kids. And even past 18, you're probably going to still have parenting issues. It's not going to disappear. Legally, things might change, but yes. it doesn't mean you're not still co-parents when they go to college and they might need you know different kinds of support from you guys or and whatnot. So you got to keep that in mind as well. Um, when it comes to child support, you know, that's something people might wonder, can you maybe get into that and how that's determined? Sure. Yeah. Spouse support. I mentioned earlier, we talked about spouse support a little bit, temporary support uh, specifically, mm-hmm. where family court uses a software called DisoMaster. Same thing with child support. Okay. Um, depending on if you have a family law court case, meaning a divorce or a parentage action, you can have child support be an element or a factor for the court to decide. It, or if you don't have a family court case open, you can always, if you have um, if you have a child out of wedlock, 
uh-huh. and you're looking just to uh, receive child support alone, you can always go through the Department of Child Support Services. However, regardless, they use the same type of algorithm or, or mathematical equation to calculate how much child support and who pays whom. And that's based on each party's income, the percentage of custodial time that you each have, uh, tax um, information. Uh, it could be your employment information. Uh, just it, There's a lot of factors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all on the program. You input all the information, and it tells you an estimate as far as who pays whom and how much. Okay. So it's based on various factors, which makes sense, like income, each parent's income, um, and then also the, the split of the kids, because if the Correct. kids are with one parent all the time, they're going to need more money. But if it's more evenly split, they might need less to do that. And then what I wanted to talk about after the break is a few different factors. One is um, if one parent wants to move out of state or moving, you know, that and then what happens with custody. And then also related to that, when one or both parents are breaking the agreements that have come into play, what what are the consequences and what can the parents do in order to, uh, to 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 maybe enforce them or whatever they might do. So we'll talk more about that after the break. Again, my guest, family law attorney, Sina Mohajer. You can go to Sina, or sorry, mohajerlawfirm.com to get more information about him and his services. We'll be talking some more after the break. If you do want to call in, 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We will be right back. Back. Uh, again, I'm joined by Sina Mohajar, family law attorney. And before the break, I mentioned a few topics I want us to get into related to custody. Um, one is, what if one of the parents after the divorce wants to move? What what happens then related to custody and all that? Sure. So what you have to keep in mind is that the court really doesn't have jurisdiction to stopping a parent from moving away, whether uh-huh. it's moving from out of city, out of state, out of country, what have you. Um in a divorce proceeding, the court has jurisdiction over that person as far as making orders and final orders uh, regarding the divorce and, and custody, but they can't stop you from leaving. Mm-hmm. What they can do is stop you from leaving with the child. That the court always has jurisdiction. So with any move away with a child, you have to have written consent from the other parent or a court order to do so. Normally, a parent's not going to just willingly uh, grant permission for a parent to take the child away. Mm -hmm. So usually that's a litigated issue you go to court for. Um, And the court will have to balance what's in the best interest of the child. You Mm -hmm. know, how long the child has lived here? Uh, Where does he go to school or she go to school? Friends, family, that sort of thing. What would be the position of the child if they move to the different location? Right. And so, and does that, is that determined also or a factor who has more custody? I mean, could the parent with less custody even make that request? Let's say if it's 75-25 or, you know, could they still make that request that I want to move away with the kid? Absolutely. Yeah, more they, than likely, probably, I'm guessing it's less likely to be honored if they have less custody. It is less likely, but even let's let's flip that scenario. Let's say the primary uh, custodial parent, the one who might have 75%, decides he or she received a great employment opportunity out of state and they want to move with the children. Right. But that's going to impede on the non-custodial parent's right to visitation. Mm. So the court will still have to decide what's in the best interest of the child. Whether it's to stay with that same parent, that's a factor to consider, as well as the other factors I mentioned earlier. Right. Got it. Okay. Um, and also, something we've talked about custody a lot. I realize I didn't make that you, you've 
there's just a distinction between legal and physical custody. Correct. Can you maybe explain what that is? Yeah. So when you're fighting custody, there, there's there's two different types of custody, legal and physical. Legal just means that you have the right to uh, medical, educational, um, living uh, situations. Uh, you have a right to have an input of whether your child receives a certain type of medical treatment, uh, as long as it's non-emergency, mm-hmm. or where they go to school, what extracurricular activities they uh, are enrolled in, where they live, etc. That falls under legal. And I would say nine out of 10, just to play it safe, courts will award joint legal custody. That means you both share the same right. legal right. Physical custody is what it is. Who, who has the kids with right. them, living with them at their house. Yeah. So I think usually when people mean say custody, they mean the physical custody. Yeah, usually. And legal custody, as far as I know, parents can lose it, but it's hard to lose it. Like Absolutely. You, it's only maybe really negligent or cases of abuse and extreme cases that a parent Absolutely. would lose legal custody. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah, usually when we're talking about people say custody issues or custody battles, we're talking about the physical custody. Physical. Right. And then so related to that, um, parents might wonder, well, what, what happens if either parent violates the custody in some way. Let's say uh, the parent doesn't show up to pick up the kid when it's their turn to pick up the kid or keeps the kid an extra day or says, like, I'm bringing them tomorrow instead of tonight or whatever it is. Uh, and maybe each case is different. But can you get into that a little bit? What happens then? Sure. So this is generally, again, I right. mean, if, like you said, every case is different right. and every person is different. It depends on what they're looking as a form of relief. So let's say the the scenario where a parent doesn't end up showing up to exercise their right to visitation. Well, normally they forfeit that right. So they lose that visitation. If they had a weekend, for example, they were supposed to pick up the child Friday after school and they failed to do so, and the other parent comes and picks up that child, they can say, hey, you lost your weekend. Sorry, pal. And it's done. Mm -hmm. But the next time they have visitation, they're allowed to exercise it. Now, if that one parent is requesting a different type of relief, like, oh, I want to make sure that, you know, they're able to pick up the child because now I had to miss work, then that's different. Mm -hmm. Then what you want to do, you want to go to court and you want to try to modify the custody order. So it sets a, a schedule down where the parent who failed to pick up the child will not be in a situation where that would happen again. I see. So, but if this happens, like, let's say regularly, can the parent then say, you know, I want to change Absolutely. The the order? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can always change it. So you have to keep in mind, too, when you have even a final order in a divorce case, which dissolves your marriage, uh, uh, divides all the assets and debts, you still have the issues of uh, child custody and child support that the court will always retain jurisdiction mm-hmm. until the child is 18. So at any time after judgment, you can always go back into court and ask for a modification of that judgment. But you have to bring a significant change of circumstances in order to do so. Mm -hmm. So and change of circumstances could be change of circumstances, but also if they're violating, if they're saying, well, you know, he's not coming to pick up. He says every other weekend, but he hasn't come for the last, you know, three weekends that he's had rights or whatever. Something significant. As long as it's significant, you can present it to the court and the court will render a decision. And then could there ever be consequences from the court like being you talked about contempt of court but could that happen also so is that something that comes into it play? depends so yeah as a blanket rule theoretically anytime you violate a court order you could be held in contempt now will the court do it every time absolutely not mm-hmm. now i can't guarantee it but right. this has been my experience um in the situation where the parent just uh forfeits their visitation rights the court's not going to send you to jail or make you pay a fine what they'll probably do is modify the order so you get less percentage mm-hmm. that's it. that's that's your repercussion um however the other way let's say the parent withholds the child and doesn't allow the other parent to see the child then when you go to court 
usually the judge will use the um, not the threat, but the risk of you losing custody or primary custody as a way to get you back in line, to get it. you to cooperate with the court order. Mm-hmm. Got it. You know, we've had a caller on hold. I want to bring her on if that's all right. Let's yeah, absolutely. Call her. Uh, Radio Hamra, you're on the air. <laughs> sure. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Hello? All right. I can barely hear. I'm not sure if she's still trying to get set up. I'm going to put you back on hold, and then uh, Ramon will talk to you and see if maybe we can uh, figure out what's going on there. Um, so we were talking about, uh, you know, parents moving things that change what are other circumstances when you say you know you talked about ch- changes in circumstances that might change the custody split what other things uh, could come into play and and that could be a list of things yeah. um for example one parent is moving away and they can no longer exercise that parenting plan that they've come up with or the court ordered which is the visitation schedule mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by parenting plan um that's a significant change or there's been signs of some type of abuse significant change um it could be a lot of things yeah. And you also mentioned before, like, uh, they want the parents to be involved. So if it's a third party, if they're getting a nanny, um, they're not going to want to give, that parent might not get awarded as much custody if they're not going to actually be physically with the kids. Yeah, yes yes, and no. So, I mean, you have to consider the fact that in, in America today, most mostly both both parents are working. You have, sure. you have a family of, of both parents working, generating an income. Um, in that type of case, if both parents are working or they need to get a, a nanny for an hour or two, right. the court's not going to punish that individual and say, let's split it differently. Right. Yeah, I guess I would, yeah, an hour or two is no. – that. Sounds, I was thinking more like all, all day or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like a consistent basis where right. one parent is available. Yeah. Yeah, the court will most likely award that time to the other parent who is available. And even really – what if it's not a nanny? What if it's uh, – Extended family member, grandma. Call it what you will. And, and nanny's a nanny. Same thing. Yeah, so yeah, if yeah. it's not the parent, that's going to be. So if someone says, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be home, but my, my mom will, the kid's grandma, that's considered. Grandparents do not have uh, more rights than the actual parent. So it's considered almost the same as having a nanny. Pretty much. In, in this type of scenario, this, pretty right, much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, got it. I think we got things set up with the caller, so let's try to bring her on. Hello, Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, hi, doctors. Uh, my question is in regard to... If one uh, one of the couple receives inheritance uh, while they're married, and then on the time of divorce, so that that inheritance goes to both of them, or mm-hmm. how does that work? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's see what uh, Sina has to say about that. So, yeah, the question is regarding um, inheritance. Okay. So what what happens then? And she said while they're married. I'm I'm sure it could depend on when it happens. So. Uh, what can you say about that? Sure. Well, in that particular situation, you have to remember an, an inheritance is a gift. Uh-huh. So if the inheritance is only to one of the individuals, that is their separate property. And it doesn't matter when it was acquired, whether it was during the marriage, before marriage, or after separation. A gift is always going to be separate property. Now, the question is is whether that inheritance or that gift was given to both of you. Mm-hmm. If it was given to both of you, now you're looking at community property. Right. But if it's individually, then it's that individual's separate property. And then what if, let's say, they use that inheritance to buy a home and then they both live in it? Is it still considered more 
Like, you know, does that change things or no? It's oh, still yes. Yeah. This, this, is, this is where you would need that forensic accountant I mentioned uh-huh. earlier, because now you have to calculate of that home what percentage is community property and what percentage is uh, separate property. Because you're not going to just request a reimbursement of that inheritance you put into the property because property does, you know, it fluctuates as far as price. Right. You're hoping that the, um, the value inflates. So therefore, you should receive a return on that investment. So this is where you get a forensic accountant to calculate and what they call is a more Martison calculation. It's these two very big family law cases uh, where they had come up with this equation. Don't ask me what the equation sure. is. <laughs> I hire an expert every time. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. So there's there's a way they look at that. So that could, I was just wondering what happens with that. Yeah. Let's see if the caller had anything else. Um, caller, did that did that answer your question? Yes, yes. And also uh, into that kind of regard to if... For example, you give that money to your, to your husband, so he goes and purchases a business, and then after a while you get divorced, then how would that affect? Hmm. Okay. That, sound, that sounds pretty messy. Yeah, let's see. It is, it is. And, and, it, <laughs> and please let me just say it again, because uh, I'm, I'm, very, I'm given limited facts, and I, I don't want you to walk away thinking this is, this is the way it's going to be. I would definitely encourage you to, to sit down with an attorney to kind of go into detail. But generally speaking, if you received an inheritance, that's your separate property. Now, if you give that to your husband, it depends on what you mean by quote unquote gift. If you gave it to him as a gift, well, that that's his separate property. But if you uh, perhaps just gave him possession of it in order to invest in this business, well, now you're looking at a separate property stake in that business. But the money the business generates would be all community property. Hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. So yeah. it is, as you said, yeah. it's very complicated and um, right, nothing right. he just said would be definitive as in you, you can make a judgment yeah, based on that. I just wanted, uh, uh, I just wanted to make sure if the case is that the second kind of that you were t- talking about, so you can go after to prove that that was my money. I uh, gave it to him in order to do the business. And uh, so then you can, you know, then the husband decides to divorce you for whatever reason. And then you can go after that. Yes. That's what I wanted. Yeah. And and again, just to add to that. So in the divorce, that business would be an issue as far as how it should be divided. And normally a business, if, for example, your husband is very adamant, no, I want to keep the business. I want to keep going with it. Well, what you would need to do is get a business evaluation at the date of separation, because then you'd want to be compensated the proper share of that community business minus your separate property investment. So again, as we were discussing a, a, a real property, a home, it's the same concept. You're investing in this business, so a percentage of that business would be separate, and the uh, the rest of it would be community, which you would split 50-50. Right. Does that Thank make you sense? So much. Sure. Yeah, it was very beautiful information the whole time. Thank oh, you good, so good. Much, both of you. Happy to hear that. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, you know, we're about to get into our last segment, and maybe in the last segment... You know, over the years of your experience doing family law, and especially when we're looking at divorce, which I think is one of the more significant ones and one we focus on the most, maybe you can share with us some of your do's and don'ts or things you've seen people do that you, you see as hurtful and maybe even could be possibly helpful so people can use that if they are if they find themselves going through a divorce, what they maybe should and shouldn't do. So we'll wrap up with that. Again, my guest tonight or today is Sina Mohajer, family law attorney. If you want more information on him and his 
uh, law firm, you go to mohajerlawfirm.com. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back again, my guest today, family law attorney Sina Mohajer. We were talking about maybe getting some do's and don'ts or also maybe some myths that people might have. Because I know, as we mentioned at the top of the show, people come into your office maybe sometimes like uh, just kind of dazed and confused or not sure what to expect. So what might be some myths that people have related to divorce? Sure. Well, one main myth is uh, a a person might be a little skeptical about leaving the family residence mm-hmm. and thinking they may forfeit any right they have there too. Yeah. And that is completely false. Um, if it's a community asset, you'll always have a stake in it. You'll always have interest in it. So if you leave the property, it does not mean you get any less. It does not mean you lose the house also. You could end up moving in and have the other spouse move out. So uh, that's one misconception. So, that in, so you're have. saying init- the parent who or, or partner who initially moves out is in no way saying that I'm forfeiting the rights to that house or that person has more rights to the house or even that that person will continue living at, Correct. in that residence. It's just so, and that's good to know because I think a lot of, they might fight that and that can also make things kind of more complicated or messy just to start things off. Absolutely. Especially um, if their kid's involved too. Right, exactly. So I think it's just, okay, just, you know, because I, I know a lot of parents, I'm not leaving this home. This is mine or this is, I'm more comfortable or whatever their reasons are. And they might think that's the beginning of the fight and I win something by that person moving out. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that's not the case. Right. Correct. Got it. Okay. Uh, Another misconception, I mean, very straightforward, child support. A lot of people think, well, if I have joint custody or 50-50 custody, I don't have to pay child support. And that's not necessarily true either. Mm -hmm. Because remember, as we said earlier, it's determined on a number of factors. Income is a huge factor. Got it. So yeah, because if the parents still would need support to take care of the kid, even if it's 50-50, you'd still have to pay. Yeah, even 50-50. I've seen um, a primary custodial parent still have to pay child support, where it was like a 60-40 split, and the 60% uh, custodial parent was just making that much more money each month than the non-custodial parent. And the algorithm, the way it's designed, it is what it is. Yeah. And related to that algorithm and the support, if someone's financial standing changes... What do they do, or what can, I mean, I'm assuming that could change the, the yeah. ruling. So, great question. Then, what do they do from there? So, at that point, you would need to file another request for order with the court, mm-hmm. and that's that's when in the earlier earlier on we mentioned these uh, interim orders before the final judgment. Right. Now, if you don't have a judgment, you file an RFO request for order and ask the judge, "Hey, we got a change in circumstance regarding income, and we need to recalculate everything." Mm-hmm. Or post judgment. Now you'd file a post-RFO and say, listen, there's a significant change. The other side now makes double the income per month. We need to recalculate it. Got it. Um, Yeah, going into some of the things you'd recommend for people to do or things that are important. You mentioned this word communication that you think is very important between the two people getting divorced. Correct. And 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 you know what? I don't want to say communication is very important if kids are not involved yeah. because certainly, you know, the trust is gone. I, I don't want to try to convince everybody to be amicable if uh, it's not being received from the other side. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if, if you guys are working together and it's just, hey, it didn't work out, it's okay. It's not the end of the world and you guys want to just go your separate ways in a in a peaceful manner. By all means, I 100% support that. Mm-hmm. But let's be real. 
divorce is not normally like that, at least not that I've seen, not Mm -hmm. the people that come into my office. There's a lot of contention. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of anger, distrust and so forth. And and there is, and there's good reason that we find money that's hidden in offshore accounts. We find Mm -hmm. out about property that one spouse didn't even know about that, that they're entitled to. So, I mean, when the marriage falls apart, where you go to the point of getting a divorce, it's understandable that you need to fight for certain things. Mm -hmm. But my takeaway is this, value what those are that you're fighting for. If it's not valued very high, because you remember you're paying for an attorney to fight for you mm-hmm. and they don't they don't work for cheap. They don't work for free normally. Uh, you're looking at anywhere between three, six, seven hundred dollars an hour, mm-hmm. depending on the level of experience that attorney has. So um, you could be potentially spending a hundred thousand dollars on a divorce. So if your assets are not anywhere near that, try not to fight about certain petty things. Yeah. yeah, the pettiness, put that aside. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. It could become, everything could become like a fighting point. Yeah. And they want to win every little battle in this war that they've created together. And like you're saying, you might, you know, and I've actually heard of lots of cases where people do this. They spend more money on attorney fees fighting for something that's worth less than what they're fighting over. It's Absolutely. very common. Yeah. Yeah. And normally you can come to a common ground. Normally you can kind of come up with a way to make both sides not necessarily happy, but not extremely upset. Right. Remember, you're, you're trying to settle. Yeah, right. That, that's essentially what's happening. Um, you know, also, I, some advice I can give, if you're going through a divorce, it is a good idea to think about going to therapy for yourself because it is, first of all, going to bring up a lot of emotions. You're grieving the loss of a relationship. You're dealing with so many things, so much stress, a lot of complex things. But also, it might help you deal with some of the emotions so that when you approach the legal issues, you can do it with a clearer state of mind. Because again, a lot of what I've seen parents going through divorce dealing with is they get so caught up in the battles and the emotions and they're so mad at their ex or their soon to be ex that they try to take it out in the courtroom and make the the court take out their anger on the other person. But that's usually not going to be the best interest of yourself and especially the kids. Um, Deal with the emotions on your own. Try to get justice in the courtroom. So I'm not saying you sometimes don't have to fight. That's going to sometimes be part of the process or even is part of the process. But make sure you're not bringing in a whole bunch of emotional baggage into the courtroom and making irrational decisions or emotional decisions that are going to affect you and the whole family, you know, more negatively. Because I think a lot of families, you see them almost go bankrupt with the money they're spending fighting in court and then everyone pays the price at the end. And it doesn't have to go that way. So it is something to consider. I think I'd recommend it for anyone during the process of divorce and after a divorce to go to therapy to deal with this loss and the change in their life and and all the things that come with it. Um, do you do you see some of your clients like in therapy? Is that something? Maybe you don't really get into that with them, but does that something that comes up? I don't get involved too much of regarding course. that, but I do see it. And yeah. and a lot of times I have seen where uh, I have a client who's very adamant and in a rush to dissolve the marriage. And when that day comes, when we go to court and they they take status is what they call it. When that's when they dissolve the marriage and you become a single person, it gets very emotional. And then they don't realize the impact it mm. has on them because this yeah. whole time they've been fighting and fighting and right. they have the anger to push them along. And then when it's over, it's like, what do I do now? Yeah. And it kind of hits you. So therapy is definitely a great, great recommendation. Sure. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, that's maybe something you could, if anything else comes to your mind, but you, you see people, I'm sure, go through emotional roller coasters in the whole process. But you're mentioning that at the end, there's this interesting feeling of like, Maybe now they let go of some of the anger or they're not as focused on the anger and they go to the sadness. Is that something yeah. you kind of see? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
And that would make sense to me because, and usually underneath anger is some pain and sadness. So, uh, you know, they're fighting and fighting and fighting. And once the war is over, they're kind of feeling the feelings that were there underneath. And, you know, again, any relationship that ends, even if it's not a marriage, you have to grieve that loss. So as much as they're focused on the fight, they might have to realize that there's also a lot of grieving that they're going to go through accepting what's happened and moving on, which is all, you know, itself a process. Um, you know, coming back to the kids, because to me, that's the the biggest issue, because I see kids being the biggest casualty of, often of, of divorce proceedings. Um, is there, you know, things you've seen parents do that have made it more helpful for the kids? Even, you know, you talked about communication. Have you seen that? And I know you're not always seeing the kids, but how they talk to the kids about it or how the kids, they keep the kids involved or actually probably not involved. Have you seen that come into play, either sure. the good or the bad? Um, well, definitely you don't want to involve your kids, not with the court proceedings. In fact, mm-hmm. it's a standard court order for neither parent to discuss the litigation with the children. Um, I've had clients and I've had opposing parties who have done that, and that is a huge no-no. Yeah. If the court finds out, I mean, you're looking at huge, huge uh, repercussions following. Um, what I yeah, recommend is communication. Um, if you need to communicate with your kids, I've had parents ask me, hey, how do I tell my kids that we're going to be moving out of the house now? Because, mm. you know, dad got the house. And, you know, again, I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm just a parent. But all I can do is kind of set myself in their shoes and think how how I would maybe address that with my kids. And there's no right or wrong, I feel. Um, I guess I could make an argument, what's a wrong way? I was going to (laughs) say, but maybe to me, it's more like it's always going to be difficult. So there's no easy way. There you go. But you can, again, you're trying to make something painful the least painful as possible. Right. So it's never going to be a fun conversation. It's always going to be uncomfortable, painful, probably tears involved. All of that, but it yeah. doesn't mean that's a bad conversation or one you shouldn't have. It's just one that, unfortunately, the situation calls for it. But yeah, I'm sure parents come to you and they say, how do I tell my kid this or how do I tell my yeah. kid that? And they probably feel very lost. Yeah, and a lot of kids' kids are asking, hey, how come I can't see dad today? Or why can't I go to mom's house right now? Yeah. And you're you're placed in a difficult position of how to explain that without saying, well, the court hasn't ordered it yet, son. Right. You know, yeah. so it, it's it's very difficult. Of course, yeah. And, you know, another common thing, and you know, anytime divorce comes up, I mention this, but I'll say it again, is that, you know, in the course of this battle that gets created in this war, parents very often start bad-mouthing the other parent and, you know, verbalizing their anger to the kids and trying to win. And, you know, we're talking about the, the courtroom, the official courtroom, but then there's the courtroom of the kids where it's like, which parent do they prefer? Which one do they like more? Which one do they think is the better one? And maybe even hoping that can affect the custody in some way if they talk to a therapist or something that they say they want mom or they want dad or whatever else it might be. But this is just, again, you're hurling darts at your kids. Your kids take that pain. Their other parent is 50% of where they get their genes from and their other parent who they love. And putting that person down is, in a way, putting your own kid down. And even if you hear the other parent is talking bad about you, and that even their family is talking bad, or whatever it is, but you know that they're getting this negative information, you think, well, now I have to fight back. I got to at least say my side so they know the whole thing. You really don't. Adding more poison doesn't help your kids in any way. It's not going to make things easier on them. And I've worked with so many families and you know seen different stages of divorce and sometimes adults who had parents who got divorced when they were a kid. And they might say that when I was younger, I saw things a certain way because let's say mom or dad was telling me these things. But then I realized that the other parent was really the good one, but they weren't engaging in the battle. So maybe it seemed like that one parent was winning, but they value that so much that I realized that as much as my, let's say dad said all these things, my mom 
never did or vice versa. Or as much as my, you know, mom's family would come and try to influence things and make my dad look bad and make him look like the bad guy. I realized really they were the bad ones and my dad was just trying to make things easier for me. And I'll always value that. And they come around to it. So you have to see the bigger picture with your kids at trying to win in that daily battle or being the better parent in someone's eyes or whatever else it might be, the bragging rights you were talking about, getting custody. Those things aren't going to help your kid. And you have to really be real with yourself and say, see that, as Sina said, that's being selfish and it's not in any way coming from your loving parenting side. That's not true love. If you really love your kids, you want to make the process as easy for them, as amicable as possible, fight as little as possible, and definitely talk as little negatively about the other parent as you can. That's what you have to do. You're trying to make a bad situation the least bad. And to try to win means you care about you more than your kids. And really, you have to recognize that and accept that. I don't know, I kind of went on a little rant there. but just No, some th- that was great. <laughs> <laughs> just some thoughts that I had that I wanted to make sure, you know, got to, to come across. Um, you know, again, people can be very nervous about finding an attorney. And even they think, well, if I talk to an attorney, I have to choose that attorney. Um, but, you know, we talked a bit over the break, and I see this with therapists too, and we talked to our clients say, you know, if you don't feel like I'm a good match for you, I want to make sure you find the best match so I can help you find someone else too. Is there a similar process with attorneys? Yeah. And, and again, I can't speak on behalf of all attorneys. Sure. I can only speak on what I think and what I do. And mm-hmm. I agree with you. It's that, it's that match. I tell people who come into my office for a consultation, if, if they don't feel the connection is right or the chemistry yeah. is right between us. Because remember, an attorney-client relationship is a sacred relationship. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to open up and disclose information you might not feel comfortable talking to anybody else about. Right. So you have to pick the right attorney. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, so I think it's important. And related to that, and you know, um, I think there's a lot of different ways that attorneys might approach divorce and things. And you know, you hear about the, the you were kind of saying like, oh, I'm going to bury your husband or your wife. I'm going to, you know, they get very, they make the war. Even they take it to another level. What What do you have to say about that attitude? And and the thing is, um, luckily or fortunately, I don't see it too much good. in my okay, practice um, dealing with other attorneys. But I mean, in that sense, you have to kind of wonder what they're really fighting for. Are they really trying to help you? Or are they just trying to really bill you? Because remember, when you're hiring an attorney, you're paying for their time on yeah. an hourly basis. Right. The more you fight, you're, you're essentially buying them their new sports car, yeah. you know, unless <laughs> right. they can get it from the other side. But that's never a guarantee. Yeah. You know, they right. may promise that, but if, if they can't get it from the court to order the other side pays your bills, you're on the hook for those bills. Right. So, of course, you do want an attorney who's going to fight for you as far as defend you the best way possible and yes. take care of you. But you want someone who I think, I would hope, looks fair too. Like, you know, they want to do everything they can to help you, but within reason. And as you mentioned earlier, and I, I know this is true about you, really sees your family as who you're dealing with, not just mm-hmm. that partner and making them win and definitely not in any way jeopardizing the kids uh, emotions and experience through the process that you see them and so um, I can definitely vouch for you that I know you'd be someone that thank people you. can trust in that way and so again I want to thank my guest today Sina Mohajer thank you so much for joining me hey thank you for having me I appreciate it yeah because you know there's a lot of issues that I mentioned people have or questions they might have about family law issues so I'm glad you brought some of those things up and as we mentioned at the top of the show I'll give the disclaimer again nothing we discussed today could constitute actual legal advice um, so if you have any real questions about something you want to do in your own life, definitely consult with an attorney. But a big thanks to Sina Mohajer from the Mohajer Law Firm. You can go to mohajerlawfirm.com to get more information about him 
and uh, his law firm there. Um, but again, you know, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the callers that called in. Thank you to Rahman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.